Well, thank you so much for joining our ABF online service. And I pray that you are having a fantastic week and you are showing up today to be challenged in your walk with the Lord. Well, whether you are near or far, we'd love to hear for, from you. So text us at 97000, your prayer requests, uh, anything that you would like to share with us. Man, our staff considers it a privilege to partner with you in prayer. Well, at ABF, we have so many things going on throughout the week. We've got Bible studies, life groups, children's events, tons of things. We'd love for you to jump on our website at agorabible.org and check out how you can get involved. Our ongoing ministries are only made possible through your generous financial support. And we would be grateful if you would prayerfully consider uh, supporting us. So if you'd like to make a donation, just go on our website and you can hit the Give tab. Well, before we dive into God's word, I would love for you to join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we are just grateful that we have this opportunity to learn from your word, from you, God Almighty. So Lord, in these moments, I pray that you would speak to every individual that is here, ready to hear a word from you. So Lord, speak clearly to us. We open ourselves up to your authority. We love you, and we pray all these things in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, greetings, church. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Adrian. Uh, good to be together in God's Word and so enjoyable spending time just working through a, a book that was so uh, important for the early church and so important for us to uh, dissect, to look to implement. We're just uh, in the second part of chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians. I invite you to turn with me. Uh, these, uh, this section I've entitled Women in the Church, and I know, I know, I know that we've said uh, of, of previous sections, there's so much controversy attached to this particular uh, section of Scripture, but this week, I really mean it. <laughs> I really mean it. This is one that has led to uh, so much division, frustration, uh, really uh, ab abuse uh, within the church. And so I just am uh, so uh, committed to making sure we walk away from this with some clarity uh, on it. I was uh, kind of chuckling last week because I, I knew this section was coming up and I even had a, a woman after the second service uh, come up to me and she said, you know what, I was reading ahead in this section of scripture and what is up with that? And so we're going to get a chance to dissect what is up with that in this section. And really what I would say, if there's anything kind of setting uh, the, the table for this, because it seems so inconsistent with what we see in the New Testament as it relates to, to women, is, is context really matters. Not just what's happening in the world at that time, but what was said prior to it, what's said after that section, uh, what's said elsewhere in scripture about the topic. And so we're going to uh, do our best to dissect uh, all of that because our, our prayer and aim is to get to what God's intent was for this section of scripture. So let me just start by going to our, our helper and asking for help. Our Holy Spirit uh, is uh, the one that allows us to make sense out of all of this. So let me just pray before we begin. Uh, with this section in chapter 14. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, again for this chance to be together and to uh, see uh, what your word has for us to, to better understand your design and your makeup and your plan for the church. As I 
mentioned last week, it's not a, a free-for-all or up-for-vote. You have specific plans and a design for what the church is supposed to look like. I pray that you'd open our eyes to that here today, that you'd be speaking through this text, God, that you'd meet us exactly where we're at, that we'd grow in our understanding, we'd grow in our love for you, and uh, just even excitement about the church. We pray that in Jesus Christ's name, amen. So starting in chapter 14, looking at verse 33 to begin with, it's just a short one. It begins with where we ended last week. It just says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I think that's an important uh, uh, backdrop for our conversation. If you remember where we were at last week, you were talking about speaking in tongues, talking about order within the church, and it gave some specific parameters for what tongues would look like. You might remember them. One at a time, people would share. They were intended to have an interpreter if they were going to share within the church with a maximum of three people sharing in tongues. But then we're told, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent, important words there, in church and speak to himself and to God. So basically giving a parameter and design for that, then he moves on to uh, parameters and guidelines for prophecy. As somebody feels like they have a word that God has placed on their heart, maybe in their study or maybe in their quiet time with the Lord before sharing, he gave parameters. Again, one at a time, others being silent, taking an opportunity for the uh, listeners to silently assess what is being said in the authenticity and accuracy of what is being presented. So that's the backdrop. And then Paul explains, he says, because we have a God that's a, a God of order, not a God of disorder. And that's what leads up to what we're, where we're at today in the section that can be a bit confusing. So after he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right, we'll stop there for obviously some much needed explanation. Some sections of scripture are just naturally, they make a lot of sense, but some you really have to unpack the context because this one seems so inconsistent with women being elevated throughout scripture, held in high regard. So you're like, well, what is he saying when he's telling women to keep silent? Is this a blanket prohibition for all women of all time? Well, as I mentioned earlier, here to, you have to consider what's happening in the book. Already in chapter 11, you remember when he was talking about uh, the women in that section and referring to the topic of veils and face coverings and, and hair length. He was explaining and he said something that I think is important to this conversation. He says, every wife, this is in chapter 11, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Basically, he, in this context, he's talking about what happens when they gather together and you see that when they pray or prophesied, it was almost as if that's an expectation for what the time of gathering 
looks like. So you're like, well, wait a second. If that's assumed, then why, what is happening here? What are we being told here when they're uh, asked to be silent? I think that's where we need to break down who he's actually speaking to to begin with. The word gun or guna is translated woman here or women here in the text. In scripture, it can mean one of two things. It can either mean women or it can mean wives. Usually the context in which it is written determines that. Where so closely right following it refers to uh, husbands means it's most likely referring not just to women in general, but to wives. And it'll make sense when I explain a little bit further. It also, when it mentions the word submission here, helps us better conclude again that it's wives because as outlined in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, the wives are intended to submit to their husbands, but not all women are intended to submit to men. It's important understanding that that's the way God's put it in place. So when Paul tells them to be silent, what does he mean when he says, as the law also says, what is the law that he's referring to? One of two possibilities. It's either the Mosaic law or it's possibly the, the law of the day and the time, the, the civil law, if you will, of living in a Roman culture. Well, it's easy to kind of break that down because in the Mosaic law, there's nothing that specifically prohibits a woman from speaking or uh, having a, a, a vocal participation in worship. That's not something that's restricted anywhere to be found in the Mosaic law. So if that's not the case with the law, more likely he's referring to the civil law that's present in the Roman culture. You see, in the Roman culture, they had a couple different guidelines. One, women were not allowed to debate or argue with their husband in a public arena. That was intended to be something that if that were to happen, it would not be in public. It would happen in a home. They're also, they were forbidden to participate in public hearings, whether it was in a court setting or a public assembly. That was, again, restricted in their present culture. So if you think about it, Paul has just finished talking about believers listening to prophecy and assessing what's being said for accuracy. So it seems that Paul is telling wives not to debate with their husbands in this public arena, in this environment. That's not the place. He's saying, save your questions from when you're at home with your husband. Basically, we don't know the background of what was happening in the Corinthian church. We do know that things were pretty chaotic and pretty messed up. And so possibly it was outbursts of people speaking, that idea where they were told uh, to assess what was being prophesied and then for them to respond to that. Maybe there was outbursts. Whatever was happening seems to be under the umbrella of Paul addressing disorder and trying to bring into place order. So he was explaining to them that he's being sensitive to the civil law, especially 
as it relates to outsiders. Remember when we were just talking about tongues last week? He said, hey, if we're all, if people show up and everybody's speaking in tongues, they're going to think we're literally crazy. So he's saying, he's explaining, he's explaining that, hey, I want us to be sensitive to that because we don't want the outsiders to be influenced by this. We don't want to do anything that affects the church's testimony. Think about that for a moment. If I were here at the church and we were assembling a a missions team to go overseas, to go spend some time in the Middle East, we would have a similar cultural sensitivity. We would think through not what our own personal preferences are or not what our rights are. We would say, okay, how can we show up and best impact the lives of the people there? Most likely, we would not have the ladies on the team wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Most likely, we wouldn't have even potentially faces exposed or hair uncovered. You'd think through those things. You most likely wouldn't have the woman, a woman speaking at the forefront of an assembly that you're having there. Why? Because you're realizing that the effectiveness of the gospel is directly connected to how sensitive you are to some of the cultural values and laws of that place. So here, Paul is saying the same. That's why he says, uh, it's cultural sensitivity. That's why he says, it's shameful for them to speak. What do you mean it's shameful for them to speak? Who is it shameful to? It's definitely not shameful to Paul who uh, continually celebrates in the end of letters in the New Testament, Testament, seeing women as partners in ministry, being dependent on them. He makes a a big deal about uh, uh, prophetesses. He, he, He celebrates women. So it's not him that is saying that. It's shameful to the people of that day. That basically this idea that the outsider He's brought up this reminder that the outsider, it's important that we give consideration to how they are receiving the message that's being extended. That's the, the same idea, if you think about it, well, it was the, that, that they don't want to get anything in the way of the desired outcome. Last week, when you're we talking about speaking in tongues, again, in that last section, he explained, man, we want them to come, hear what's being said, be convicted of that being exposed and and falling on their faces and calling out to the Lord. That's the desired outcome. He doesn't want anything to get in the way of that possibility. So Paul is willing to forego personal liberties in order to reach the lost. Remember 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. He says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. This is so countercultural to us because we're all about fighting for our rights and our liberties. But in the same way that he told slaves to obey their masters, he wasn't telling it, he wasn't endorsing slavery. He's saying, man, I don't want anything to get in the way of people coming and seeing the love and grace that Jesus Christ offers. I like how one author worded this section. You'll see it there on the screen. It says, let the wives be silent in the churches for these wives are not allowed according to civil law to speak in a certain way. That is to publicly question husbands, prophecies. Rather, let the wives be in submission 
as the civil law also says. If they want to vet their husband's prophecies, let them do that at home. That's, a, I, I think, a, a good way to capture the big idea of what's being said in this, six, this section. And really, if you think about it, it seems consistent with what we see in the rest of Paul's teaching. It assumes that what he said in chapter 11, that women pray and prophesy, that we have a Paul that considers women as partners in ministry, a Paul who is concerned that believers obey local authorities for the sake of their testimony. All of it seems to blend together. And it's interesting on this topic, there's actually a lot of unanimous thought on this section. I was reading, as you would guess with this topic, a ton this past week from different authors, different uh, places. And that really in conservative Christendom, that this is the understanding of that section of scripture that seems to, to correspond or make the most sense. Otherwise, what's the alternative is that Paul is saying that women have no voice within the church. I don't believe that is the case. I would lean the opposite direction uh, for that. In fact, Scripture seems to celebrate women in their roles left and right. Deborah, if you remember from the Old Testament, was a judge that faithfully led the entire nation of Israel. Huldah was a prophetess that's talked about in the Old Testament. Phoebe is a known prophetess and servant and deacon in the New Testament. We also see Anna as an elderly prophetess in Luke's account of Jesus' life. And then the four daughters of Philip who prophesied in Acts 21. Basically, you can't prophesy and remain silent. Acts 2, 17 and 18 refers to a future in that time where the sons and daughters will prophesy. So both men and women were to be the mouthpieces of God to edify the church. We believe women are a vital part of the ministry here at ABF and are not intended to be silent in church, especially when there's not a cultural restriction getting in the way of that. Now, preaching and teaching is a different conversation as it relates to uh, elders. And when we get to a section of scripture that outlines the expectations of an elder, we'll get to that topic somewhere down the line. We'll continue in the text. Hopefully, I've given an explanation that resonates or makes sense from that. Verse 36, but uh, even let me say one more thing about that. Feel the freedom to wrestle through these topics on your own. Feel the freedom to send me a note. Feel the freedom to suggest something different with that. I, I want us to, to come to some conclusions about this and convictions on our own, not just something that you absorb and digest, but you to wrestle through some of this stuff. Continue in verse 36. It says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. I remember uh, growing up when, uh, when my dad would get to a point where we had pushed his buttons far enough, there'd be a certain face that my father would make and a certain tone to his voice that everybody in the family knew 
he is serious now. We, we have pushed him to the point, the, the brink of, of, of seriousness. And that face, I'm still practicing that face with my kids. It takes uh, years and years of practice, I believe. But here's the idea is Paul is the spiritual father. He even refers to that earlier in the book to this group of young believers. And so you can sense in this section that he is as serious as a heart attack. He's wanting to make sure that they understand. This is not just some whim that he's going on or just some possibilities or suggestions. No, this is literally the Lord's direction as it relates to the church. As a spiritual father, he's wanting to make sure they're crystal clear on this. You remember all the crazy stuff that the church has been entangled in. They, they, they're segment, segmented based on their uh, preference of leaders. You think about what's happening when they come together for communion. They're, they're feasting and getting drunk and forgetting about the intent of that providing for the poor. We're told earlier in their book that they're busy suing each other over trivial uh, matters. Now they're misusing the spiritual gifts, gifts and elevating speaking in tongues over other things. And so, I mean, this is, uh, this is a whole lot going on that Paul is getting fired up about. And so he's making sure he's almost presuming that there's going to be some pushback on what's being said here. So he explains, what does he say? He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? In other words, does God's word originate with you? He's getting in their grill. Are you the source of God's word? Are you claiming that for yourself? Or are you receiving God's word? He says, or are you the only ones it has reached? In other words, aren't there other witnesses within other churches confirming what I am saying to you now? Basically, this seal-proof logic is usually exactly what comes on the other side of that stern voice is when the, the point that there's one, you're wanting to bring clarity and understanding to a topic, that's what Paul's doing here. He continues, he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you, that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. In other words, if any of you has the gift of prophecy or is even just spiritually minded, you should be able to affirm that I'm, what I'm saying is just not suggestions or my own thoughts, but literally directed from the Lord himself. So this is, again, is not just Paul shooting from the hip. He says, if anyone does not recognize this, that it's from the Lord, he is not recognized. If you do not acknowledge the guidelines that I'm giving here, the parameters that I'm setting in place, he's saying you shouldn't even be recognized within the church as, a, as someone that's spiritual, as somebody with a gift of prophecy. He's basically pushing back against any pushback. He's writing them. He's calling them out. And here's the truth of the matter. He's calling them to some drastic change, some desperately needed change. You see, things on the other side of this rebuke are not going to look the same if they actually respond, if they repent and turn and redirect their actions. That's always God's plan and hope for us is when we're exposed to truth, there's intended to be transformation. Just thinking about that in this, this little community of young believers there, what that would have been like to have all of this stuff confronted at once. You'd be like, man, where do we even begin? It's, it's going to take some major transformation. I was thinking about what it would be like to receive that letter. 
got me thinking, I wonder if Paul in his older years as he is now at this point in life, as he's sitting down and starts penning a letter to ABF, what would he charge us to do differently? What, did he, what would he call us out on? What would he confront us on? What would be some of the things that he brought up? What, what would be addressed to Agora Bible Fellowship? Maybe it's not prioritizing the idea of being at church as faithfully as God's design. Maybe it's not serving or using your gifts appropriately. Maybe it's not giving or supporting the ministry financially. Maybe it's not looking for opportunities to invite others to be here, as we see in Scripture, that outsiders are an expected part of the church. Maybe it's not engaging enough in the times of worship. Maybe it's taking that time too lightly. Maybe it's showing up late and not even making it to worship. Maybe it's not extending forgiveness to others in the church that have maybe offended you or wronged you somewhere along the line. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's complaining. I don't know exactly what it is Paul would confront within this church, but I think it's a lot easier than being confronted to do some self-reflection, to assess, oh God, what, what are you putting your finger on on my involvement in the church? What do you want to change in my life? What do you want to see different moving forward from here? Concludes with these last couple verses. So, my brothers, I like the brothers brings them back to some degree of warmth, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So basically, after Paul has clarified his expectations for wives to follow some of the cultural norms of that day and not causing disruption, he returns to talking about prophecy and tongues with a kind of a, a summary statement, if you will. What does he tell them? He says, he, says for, he says, don't forbid anyone from speaking in tongues, but make sure to use it in an orderly way. As we've alluded to last week, there's a lot of different people coming from a lot of different views and directions as it relates to tongues. We have some that believe that tongues cease completely from that time period and no longer relevant today. Some believe that the aspect ceased of their ability to be able to be interpreted or understood by all dialects. That part that was visible in, in Acts chapter 2 has ceased. Others believe that they continued and keep moving forward and being part of the church community present day. We even have an elder as part of the church that uses speaking in tongues as part of his personal worship. What I would say is that we are a church that has room for different thoughts on this subject. You can have different convictions, and that's okay. This is a peripheral thing, not a primary thing. But what I would say is what's outlined in chapter 14 gives us parameters that for sure we would stay within the guidelines that are clearly outlined by Paul in this chapter. So brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid, forbid speaking in tongues. So what about the prophecy part? How do you desire to prophesy? What does that look like today? Well, I like that idea. I like the idea of desiring, wanting to have something to bring to the table 
to share with other people, a word from the Lord from your own time with him. What does that require? That means that there needs to be times that you're carving out to be with him, to be in the word, to be in prayer. And from that, the overflow of that is then for you to bless and encourage others to be able to show up. I think the venues of life groups, Bible studies are absolutely perfect for that. For you to show up, even on our life group, we're working through the, the Sermon on the Mount. We read some of the scripture. How does this apply? Somebody's able, we go around the circle, have different people share what it means from their own life, examples, experiences. It's so cool to see what God is doing and how he's moving in different people's lives. You want to be a contributor and part of that because that's the way we build each other up. So he says, earnestly desire that. I think that's a healthy thing. Verse 40, and we'll end with that. It says, but all things should be done decently and in order. Done decently and in order. I would say as I reflect on our own church, I, I don't really think that that is necessarily our area of issue. If there is a, a, a pendulum swinging between the idea of operating in the spirit and the idea of operating uh, in the mind and spirit, I would say we definitely lean towards the mind part. We could actually stand to swing the pendulum a little bit more towards the spirit, I would suggest. So it's not a disorder, but a man fully engaging in worship and engaging in, in, in the time of teaching and the, the amens and the uh, shouting out when we're praising the Lord. I would say, man, if anything, we could use a little bit uh, less order and a little bit more heart and passion in our times together rather than it becoming just an operation of the intellect. But that's what he points us to, he charges us to. And the reason, and I've, I've said it already in this series, the reason I think all of this is important is because what happens here matters. What happens when we gather together to be in God's word, when we gather together, worship is actually either great publicity for the Lord Jesus Christ to the world around us, or ne negative publicity. You hear somebody say, any publicity is good publicity. Well, not in the church. That's not the case. That's, that's not what we're leaning towards. In fact, we're just the opposite. Only good publicity is what we're looking for to honor him in every aspect of what we do, where we're even elevating and putting the needs of outsiders above our personal liberties as we see in this section of scripture. Let me pray as we wrap up. God, I thank you for this time in your word. And I thank you for, uh, as we have an opportunity to spend time breaking it down to, to better understand it, we get a clearer picture of your heart for the entire church, for men and women to engage in what's appropriate in times of worship and what's not, where there's times to listen and there's times to speak, where there's times to be sensitive to the outside world and there's times where we just have to fully engage in worship. God, we thank you again for the wisdom that you provide, even in this uh, section of scripture, God. We thank you for the lack or the, the, the clarity that you bring in a world that is so often lacking clarity. We praise you for that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.